I was just doing a little bit of walking meditation outside uh, on the front side here before coming in. And uh, it's so beautiful right now, this time of day and this time of year. I was just struck at how uh, our good fortune to be able to be in a place like this. You know, we, we might not always feel that way over the course of the day. I feel like we signed up for some kind of torture session or something, but, but you know, we all have great uh, fruits of some really wholesome past kamma to be able to spend time practicing like this in a place like this. You know, for all the conditions to come together for us to uh, have this kind of opportunity, we can take that for granted. And I think it's important to not take it for granted. All of the fact that we're interested, that we have the opportunity, and then all of the other conditions that have to come together. It actually is quite rare in the world. I know a lot of people in places where I've spent time in Asia who would, they would feel like they had been reborn in some heavenly realm to be able to sit in this hall with you this way. A number of years ago, I spent most of a year on a long pilgrimage in India to the, the Buddhist uh, holy sites there. And I was, uh, in the, I was the attendant and companion to a friend of mine who's a Buddhist monk. And it was at that time he had been in robes for 25 years and had arranged for a sabbatical year. <laughs> I don't think of monks as having sabbaticals, but... Uh, he was the abbot of a monastery and he'd arranged to not be the abbot for a year. And he had never been to the Buddhist sites, uh, Bodhgaya, where the Buddha site of his enlightenment, or Lumbini, where he, uh, where he was born, and uh, the other places there where he gave his first discourse. And during the period of the rains retreat, when monks in the Theravada tradition and nuns as well, determined to stay in one place for a period of 12 weeks, three lunar months during the rainy season in South Southeast Asia. They don't wander about, uh, they, they stay in one spot. And so this was at that time of year and we were spending the rains in a place called Savati, which is the era site of the Jetavana Grove. It's a famous in the in the Buddhist stories, the time at the time of the Buddha, he he spent more rains retreats and gave more discourses in that area than any other one place. He was a wandering teacher, and uh, it's a beautiful park uh, with many trees and lovely lawns. And there are the ruins there in that area. There's a small modern Indian village, but there are the ruins of the ancient town with the old ancient wall. It's it's just an earth-covered ring, but it's there, dating back to almost 2,600, well, quite a bit more than 2,600 years. And uh, in the park, there are the foundations uh, of the buildings. And one of them is sort of designated, they said this was the Buddha's kuti, his, his meditation hut. And who knows, but it's really old. <laughs> it goes back that far. 
may well have been. Um, so it's quite amazing to spend time in places. We, would, we had a morning ritual. We would get up uh, when it was before dawn, when it was still dark. And where we were staying was a bit of a walk, half an hour walk or so. And we'd walk through the rice paddies and the fields to get to the Jetavana Park. And then we would spend the morning meditating there. And so we'd get there by sunrise. That was our morning ritual, accompanied by a a pack of dogs and uh, occasionally assaulted by monkeys on the way in. (laughs) And often when we were walking over in the early cool, pre-dawn cool there, hot, hot, rainy season that time of year. But it was still cool in the mornings. And there would be chanting coming from one of the viharas, these um, uh, rest houses for pilgrims from all the different countries where there is Buddhism these days have these rest houses. So there was, um, we were staying in the Korean vihara and there was Sri Lankan and Thai and Bur- Burmese and Chinese and Japanese uh, rest houses for the pilgrims. And we'd hear chanting coming. And one of the chants that we often heard at that time was uh, called the Satipatthana Sutta. It's one of the most famous and beloved uh, suttas uh, in the entire collection of discourses of the Buddha. It's the single most um, detailed, comprehensive set of meditation instructions really in the whole collection. So this evening, I want to start by playing some uh, chanting of that sutta. So the first part of this talk is just some listening meditation. And maybe you can just receive it on kind of uh, just an energetic level. So I won't play too much, but a bit of it here. And maybe just uh, close your eyes and let it in as a somewhat timeless quality, I think. Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Evan me sutang Ekang samayang bhagava Kuru suviherati Kamasa dhammang nam Kuru nang nigamu Tatrako bhagava bhikkhu amante si bhikkhavoti badante ti te bhikkhu bhagavato pachasosum bhagava etadvocha Ekayano ayam bhikkhave 
This chanting was done by a Sri Lankan monk, Venerable Omalpe Sobita Mahathera, and it wasn't the same one that we heard in India, but very similar. And sometimes I think it's powerful to hear the teachings in the original language, even though we may not understand it. The first words after the namotasa, the homage, were ewang me sutang. And most of the suttas begin this way. That means, thus I have heard. Ewang me suttang. And it uh, points to this, um, the way these teachings have come to us was originally this oral tradition. They were memorized. And that ewang me suttang, that was usually the venerable Ananda, the Buddha's attendant and cousin, who had an incredible memory, they say, and, and he heard most of them. And the ones that he didn't hear, he, he made a deal with the Buddha that the Buddha would repeat them to him so he could remember them. So he was this incredible repository of these teachings that for a long time, three or more hundred years after the death of the Buddha, they were only 
passed along. We have them because of people taking the time to memorize them. They weren't written down. So this teaching of the Satipatthana Sutta, the word Satipatthana, usually translated as foundation of mindfulness or sometimes establishment of mindfulness. And this quality of, um, it's it's, uh, spoken about in the teaching in terms of abiding, a sense of abiding in mindfulness, in mindful awareness. So this is uh, the last section that you just heard in Pali. This is a translation. One abides contemplating the body as a body. One abides contemplating feelings as feelings. One abides contemplating mind as mind. One abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. Ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having put away desires and discontent for the world. So this sense of abiding or dwelling, resting in mindful awareness is an important one because it places a greater emphasis, you could say, on this quality of mindfulness, of presence, of awareness, than on any particular object of attention in any moment. The emphasis is on the awareness itself and points to this, the fact that we can learn from any object. We can learn what we need to from anything that arises in our experience. It actually doesn't matter what's happening. And so this teaching breaks down our entire experience, all that we can know in body and mind into four uh, kind of spheres of attention or uh, teacher uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu calls them frames of reference. And this is important because our entire experience is included within these foundations. So nothing is left out. Our practice includes our whole life, our entire uh, experience on, in every way. And this is, a, this is really crucial because if something were left out, it would be somehow incomplete, but it's all in there. And so if we were to distill this teaching down to the essence, because it's quite detailed, what the Buddha is saying in this is pay attention to what's going on in your experience, in body and mind, know what's happening there. Just be mindful of it, bring attention to this. So it's quite simple in a way. So these are the four establishments of mindfulness. The four satipatthanas then are mindfulness of the body, kaya nupasana, mindfulness of feeling tone, vedana nupasana, Mindfulness of mind, citta, nupasana, and mindfulness of dhammas, uh, translated usually as objects of mind or mind objects. So the body is materiality, the material form, in terms of our own experience of, of body. Feeling tone, vedana, is the quality that arises with every contact within the body and mind that has either a pleasant, unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling tone or quality. So it's not feeling in terms of emotions or the way we might feel about something, but it's very specifically this pleasant, 
unpleasant or what we might call neutral uh, feeling or flavor of experience said to arise with everything. It's often quite subtle. Sometimes it's very clear, strong, uh, painful sensations, very clearly unpleasant or light, easy sensations, clearly pleasant, for example, or the taste of food may be very pleasant. So in some cases it's very obvious, in some cases it's not. Then mindfulness of mind is a, a general sense of, um, of the quality of mind as it's affected by different uh, mental kinds of energies. For example, if the mind is in this section, we look at the mind in terms of if it's affected by uh, strong desire or if that is not present or affected by uh, aversion, uh, the mind saying no. We just know whether or not these qualities are present in the mind, that the mind is uh, scattered or distracted or uh, collected, things like this. And then mind objects, these dhammas, are, you could say, patterns of experience. So it includes things like the hindrances that I spoke about this morning are in that section. So one knows if uh, dullness is present, what led to its arising, what might uh, lead to its going away, and how to keep it from coming back. Things like that. The factors of awakening are in there. The six sense doors and the objects of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, and the mind. So it's, you could say, patterns or certain ways we can look at our experience in the mind. So don't worry about keeping track of any of this or remembering any of it. Really. This is not like a quiz later. Please write an essay on the four satipatthanas or any of it. It's not the point of this, this information. And in our practice, it's not so much something that we choose to pay attention to. Oh, I'm going to look at this or that. Sometimes we might highlight one or the other of these. But for the most part, there's a natural flow between them. So for example, if we're sitting in meditation and we're uh, noticing sensations in the body and then a strong, uh, unpleasant sensation, physical, uh, painful sensations, we notice the, the unpleasant quality there. That's the, the first foundation and the second foundation. We may notice aversion, resistance to that then that's the third foundation. We see, oh, aversion has arisen. We might notice uh, dullness or sleepiness. That's one of the hindrances. Or we notice that there's energy or calm in the mind. So these things are noticed just naturally as part of uh, where the attention is drawn in our experience. So we don't have to do, do it. Don't worry about doing it. So tonight, uh, mostly I want to speak about the first foundation, the first establishment of mindfulness, uh, the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of materiality, of physicality, material form, which is a lot of what we've been uh, emphasizing in the instructions so far. And it's a very rich uh, field for exploration. And the Buddha praised it highly in one place, more than one place in the text. This is from the kaya gata sati vaga. Kaya <coughs> means body, gata verse, sati mindfulness. So 
versus about mindfulness of the body. <laughs> I love things like that. And Polly, you just string stuff together. You get these nice long words, kayagata sati. He said this in one in, in there. Even as one who, who encompasses with his mind the mighty ocean includes thereby all the rivulets that run into the ocean, just so whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes thereby all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge. He said, one thing, O bhikkhus, if developed and cultivated leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. One thing, if developed and cultivated, leads to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. That's high praise and points to this practice as something that's potentially very powerful. So in this teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta, Uh, It's quite detailed and the Buddha speaks of a a number of ways of directing attention to the experience of the body. And in uh, in the sutta, it begins with mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of breathing. And so uh, in the very beginning part, one simply knows that one is breathing. Just that bare knowing, breathing, it's happening. We start with that. One knows breathing in in-breath. One knows breathing in out-breath. One knows if these are long or short, a short or long in-breath, a short or long out-breath. One experiences uh, breathing in terms of the entire body. And this is seen in a couple of ways. Uh, and some people relate to it in terms of the entire body of the breath. You could say the beginning, middle, ending of an in-breath. Beginning, middle, ending. The body of the breath. Or we could say the breath within the entire body. Within the whole body form, bodily formation. Then uh, something slightly more active. Breathing in, calming the body. And breathing out, calming the body. We can direct mindfulness to the body in terms of the posture. So this is the section part of that uh, teaching in terms of walking, standing, sitting or lying down. So one simply knows one is walking, standing, sitting, lying down. These four postures, I might add a fifth one in between all of them. And in terms of activities, going forward and returning looking ahead, looking away, looking behind, flexing and extending the limbs, wearing clothing, carrying things, eating, drinking, tasting, defecating and urinating, standing, sitting, going to sleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. We know the body in terms of of what are called the 32 parts. At that time, the body was uh, seen, understood to be made up of 32 parts. And it begins with uh, the head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. So one directs mindfulness to these parts of the body, internal organs, fluids, etc. In terms of the uh, elements, Michelle spoke about this on uh, Friday night or Saturday night or some night. 
the, uh, the elemental nature of the body of earth, air, fire, and water. I'll speak more about that a little later. We, uh, there a, was a practice at that time, it's not so common now, of uh, watching corpses decay in charnel grounds and places where uh, corpses were left to decay, those who were too poor to afford a, uh, a burning, a funeral pyre. And uh, the, the time of the Buddha, it was a common practice to, to sit in places like this and watch corpses decay. Not doesn't sound real appealing probably to most of us. Um, it's kind of amazing. Someone sent me a video once, a time-lapse of a decaying animal corpse. And it was unbelievable to watch it in a few minutes go through what must have taken a couple of weeks and turn from this recognizable form into soil with plants sprouting out of it. It's quite phenomenal to watch that. So we probably won't be doing too much of that here, although <laughs> Michelle might be heading towards, towards uh, <laughs> if she doesn't get start feeling better, we might have a corpse up here. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you never know. And the final way, the very last part of this section is knowing there is a body. Just that. There is a body. I love that. Mindfulness that there is a body. That's how this section ends. Very simple. So there's all these different ways that we can bring attention to the body, to material form. So I want to go back into the section on the elements a bit, uh, in a bit more detail. Um, This way of seeing the body actually, um, in a way it marks an important shift in our practice. And it opens into the realm of of, um, the insight that we talk about in insight meditation. So I'm hoping to touch on that tonight. And you know, this description of the elements, it sounds kind of archaic or sort of alchemical almost, you know, earth, air, fire, water can sound outdated like an antiquated way of looking at things. And we may say, well, science doesn't talk about things in those terms anymore. And for this way of seeing our experience of the body to make any sense, we have to um, look at our direct experience rather than getting into some thinking about these words and what they mean and and some kind of uh, intellectual um, discussion about them with ourselves. Um, the words are not actually important, but that they point to in terms of our direct experience of materiality is what we're interested in. And so I'll just talk about sort of the classical way that the, these uh, elements are, the experience of them, how they manifest, you could say. So the earth element manifests in terms of the experience of solidity or hardness or softness textures of roughness and smoothness, this kind of thing, earth element. Water element is, uh, has the qualities, characteristics of fluidity, flowing, like uh, flowing moving water. When we open the tap or see a stream, this flowing quality. And also 
uh, cohesion. That's an interesting aspect of water. But if we think of it in terms of if we take flour or dust and mix some water with it, it coheres, it, it forms then into a lump. You could think of the body. If, I, if we took all of the body out of a Greg up here, if we, it's a lot, mostly high percentage water. If we took it out, we'd have this pile of dry bits would be left, piled up here. I, I can't do that for you. I'm, I'm not gonna, <laughs> we're not going to dehydrate me. So you could see it, but it would be this interesting pile of dry stuff. And not very big, actually. <laughs> So um, that's that cohering. It's what holds this together, um, like you would hold uh, flour together, making uh, baking something. The fire element has uh, has to do with temperature. So it's fire seems to be the hot side of things, but it's the range of hot to cold. So it's temperature rather than only the heat of fire. And we see this in the body, in the world, all of these air or wind element has the uh, qualities of movement or pressure, tension, vibration. You could think of it in one aspect of it, this quality of movement and pressure. Like if you blow up a balloon and you have that quality of pressure, you can feel that in the body, in the lungs. Feel the pressure of wind as it pushes against us in the world. And in our experience directly, we, we we rarely experience just one of these. They usually come in pairs or, or in groups of all of them. Sometimes one will stand out, strong heat, for example, but usually they come uh, in combinations. And so in our meditation, and we say this over and over, and we'll continue to say it, what we're interested in is dropping below the level of concepts and ideas to our direct experience of life below the surface appearances of things. And so an easy example of this is if we think of looking in, in a mirror and we'll see this body and the form of it and head and hands and legs and arms and torso and all the parts there of a body. But then if we sit in meditation our experience of that is very different, isn't it? We don't actually experience those, those things, those names of things. Well, let's do it. We'll do a short guided meditation here. So just stay. You don't have to shift your posture. It's not important to do that. But just let your attention come into the, the sense of the body sitting here. And and let it come to the contact of, of the, the buttocks or the feet or legs, if you're kneeling with the earth, with the, the cushion, with the floor beneath you. Feel that sense of pressure and weight there. And maybe some sense of hardness, the earth element there in that solidity, hardness, pressure, maybe some air element in pressure. Bring the attention up into the mouth and gently tap the teeth together. Hardness there. Or run the tongue over the teeth. Maybe 
roughness or smoothness. You may notice the sensations of the, uh, there may be water in the mouth. You may feel some some sense of the uh, water element, some flowingness there. Bring the lips together for a moment. And then very slowly pull them apart. A little, maybe a stickiness, the cohesion of water in that stickiness there. Or perhaps if you press the palms together of the hands and then pull them slowly apart, there'll be a kind of sticky feeling maybe, a water cohering there. Perhaps again in the hands, let one hand rest in the other. There's the experience maybe of some warmth or coolness or in some other part of the body, perhaps exposed skin, feeling of coolness and where the skin is covered, warmth. Maybe warmth within the mouth fire element there. And then if we let the attention come to the movement of the abdomen with the breathing, we can feel this movement, pressure, perhaps tension towards the end of an in-breath. Movement, relaxation, maybe even some subtle vibration this manifestation of the air element or, or just light touching of air touching the body on the skin. So you can open your eyes, come back into the room. So then when we bring this, our bare attention to the body in meditation, our experience of it is very different than, than when we look in the mirror, isn't it? And this is obvious, but it's actually quite a profound shift there. We can't actually experience head or hand or arm. We experience this changing flow, this dance of elemental particles, you could say, this elemental nature. That's what we can actually experience. What we call body is just this flow of changing sensations in that way of, of being with it. And that's not to deny the fact that if you look up here, it's one, there's a Greg sitting here and I see all of you sitting out there and you're all all there, I see you in all your parts. And, and we have these bodies and we have to feed them and clean them and do all this stuff. That's real too, but is, is that the only truth? You know, is, is one or the other of these somehow more real, more true, more valid as a way of, of, of uh, understanding body? You know, can we, can we hold both of these as equally real? So when we drop beneath these ideas or concepts of body to this direct experience, moving to this 
non-conceptual relationship there, there's a, an important shift that happens. Because if we stay on the level of concept, whether it's with the body or anything else, we don't enter the realm of, of real insight because we don't see change within concepts. Concepts, ideas, just they just remain fixed as something we, an idea we might hold at a certain time. But if we look closely at uh, this realm of the elements, for example, in the experience of body, if we look at it closely, all we see is that it's changing. It's just changing constantly. It's a flow, a dance of shifting sensations. So there's a lot that we can learn. And this learning, it's not so much, it's not at all something that we, it just happens. It's not a doing. So don't hear this as something now that you have to do in some kind of active way beyond just showing up for your life, meeting it with mindfulness. But it's interesting because it helps to kind of unhook us from relating to body as I, as me, or mine, or our tendency to claim ownership of it in some ways, because we start to see that it's just part of nature, body. These elements that we just were exploring in that short guided meditation, those occur within this physical form of our body and in the world. And it's hardness is hardness, hardness here and hardness externally in the world. And so we feel it within the body. We feel it through our contact with the world, touching the world and being touched by it. It's just this elemental flow and flux. And so there's, you know, how do we lay claim to heat or hardness as being I or me or mine? We don't say, am I, am I the heat part or, or the, the flowingness of things or pressure? Oh, my pressure. my roughness, my heat. We don't, it it unhooks us from claiming it as being who we are, as I, as me, as mine. We start to see that the body is just a part of nature, not separate from it. It's a manifestation of it. You know, so often we speak about nature or the environment as something out there (laughs) that maybe we, here we get to go out into it out there and I can maybe go out into it, separate from. This actually leads to a lot of problems. This leads us to bad behavior in terms of how we live. (laughs) Because we think we're somehow exempt from certain responsibilities as being part of nature. We don't care for it. We feel like it's not part of us. But it's not true. These bodies are an aspect of the landscape, of nature, of the environment. We come from it, we're supported by it, and we're going to return to it. We're part of that. So it's, it's a change in our perception. We see the body knows not so much as me, as who I am, but as uh, an aspect of nature, just manifesting natural processes. Everything that we can know in our experience. All we're doing here is exploring 
nature, the nature of things. Internally, externally, it's the same deal. When we investigate the body in this elemental way, it uncovers the relationship of uh, mind and materiality, nama rupa in Pali, mentality, materiality. So that's what we've got going here in this experience of our life. We have the mind which knows, but doesn't have form. There's no form, we can't find it in form in a form, we can't place it anywhere, but it it knows, it has this, that's its characteristic mind knowing. And we have this body has form, but it doesn't know, the body doesn't have knowing. And we see these two coming together, mind knowing body, mentality knowing materiality. This is an early stage of insight, namarupa parachedanyana. We see how this, these come together in this, contact over and over, mind knowing body. We see how mind and matter influence and condition one another. Mind conditions matter. So for example, let's say that there's anger or shame arising in the mind. Often there'll be a quality of heat. The body responds, heat may arise in the body. Or some contraction or pressure from these mental mentalities uh, like anger or shame, or if the mind is really cooled out and kind of in a very relaxed, open, maybe more concentrated kind of uh, state, then the body responds and adjusts for that. If there's a lot of calm, the body may relax or open, feel lightness there. Or if there's a lot of quality of joyful interest, really interested in a lot of joy in that, the body responds, there may be pleasant tingling sensations or again, qualities of lightness that may come in that. We can see in, maybe we touch into this quality of intention, Jesse spoke about in terms of the walking, the intention to move before movements. We may touch into that quality of this about to energy, gathering of energy before movements. And then the body responds, this mentality conditioning materiality in that way. We can see it in the other way, matter conditioning mind. So let's say it just gets really too cold here in the hall. We leave the windows open, we start to freeze you out at night or something. And we can see uh, there may have maybe aversion arising in the mind and, and all kinds of thoughts of they should do something about it, they shouldn't let it get cold, they should turn on the heat, something like that. Or if, if uh, hardness, becomes very strong to the point of becoming painful, we may see uh, some quality of fear or worry or aversion arising in the mind in response to that. This This exploration begins to reveal what are called the three common or universal characteristics of all experience and will be talking about this in all kinds of ways over the next days. So all of these things I spoke about, the characteristics of hardness and softness and texture and warmth and coolness and pressure and vibration and cohesion and flowing, these individual unique characteristics of these things, but they also uh, all share common qualities 
qualities that are common to all of them and everything that arises in our experience. All of it has the quality of, of being impermanent, of changing. These uh, quality of a kind of unsatisfactoriness born of the fact that it's changing and a kind of coreless, uncontrollable nature. It's happening by itself. You know, if we look at the elements manifesting in the body, we'll see none of it lasts very long. It's always changing. It's in this constant state of flux. The rising, falling movement of the breath or the sensations in the body and sitting and standing, all of these things, we see them arising and passing away. This quality of change there this impermanent anicca nature, even things that appear to be solid, if we draw close to them, we'll see they're made up of a shifting uh, change of small sensations within something that might appear to be solid. And because they're changing, they don't offer us anything that we can hold on to as a source of lasting happiness. We try, we try a lot. Pleasant sensations in the body, If we're lucky enough, we get some, oh, it's nice, it's light, ah, I got it. Oh, no, no, it's going away. (laughs) And our assumption is we did something wrong. Somehow it's supposed to stick around or last, but it doesn't, it changes to unpleasant. So it's unreliable in that way. We can't count on it. The most blissful state of mind, oh, yeah. Oh no, I hate everything. Or we get to some still quiet place and then there's resistance. Why? No, no. It's, we can't count on it to last, to be our source of happiness in any lasting way. It's not that we don't have enjoyable experiences. That's not what it means. We do, but they don't last, so we can't count on them as, as the thing that makes, our, makes, uh, makes us happy in some uh, lasting way. And then we start to see that it's all changing due to causes and conditions. We can't control it or will it to be. We can't say, I'm only going to have pleasant feelings in the body and pleasant light mind states for the rest of the day or for even the next second. We can't make it be the way we want it to be through an act of will. It's just happening by itself. It's conditioned. It's causes and conditions coming together, falling apart over and over. So seeing all this unhooks us from a lot of stuff. We stop slowly, stop trying to hold on or control or make it be the way we want it to be as though that were possible. So I encourage you to, um, <coughs> to not worry about anything I'm saying tonight, mostly, <laughs> but check it out as it appears and comes to you just in your, just in your goings about through the days here. You know, just for example, when you're eating, if you notice as you chew, and the food becomes, turns, it gets more watery. Water element starts to show up there. You can just notice, oh yeah, water element there. 
or when we're drinking tea or taking a shower, or sometimes when water, the wateriness of things, or um, rough or smooth textures in the body, in the world, hardness, the hardness of things in the, externally, the hardness that manifests in the body. Warmth or coolness, we notice this in the sun, shine touching the body, the cool breeze within the body, externally, internally, pressure, tension, tightness with the breath and the, uh, the movement and pressure of the wind against the skin. And we recognize these things. It, brings a, it can bring a real kind of joy and confidence, I think. We start to see, see all of this unfolding just, just as we connect with, with uh, our life. And as we settle into seeing things in this way, there's a shift that happens just on its own. It's not something we do, but we start to let go of ownership of the whole process in a certain way. And this leads to the deepest possible kind of joy. Somewhere I got this quotation, and I think it's from uh, a very famous monk in Thailand named Ajahn Buddha Dasa. But I don't know, so I'm not going to say it's from him. But somebody, not me, I think, once said, <laughs> what we are <clears throat> said, what we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And that's really, in some essential way, all we're doing here is giving this whole thing back to nature coming back, you could say, into an alignment with nature, with these natural processes that are just happening lawfully within the body, in the world, outside the body, the body in nature, the body, an aspect of nature. We're giving it back, give it back to nature. And this is a great, that's a great relaxation that comes as this process happens. We lay down a great burden that we didn't realize we were carrying and we give it back to nature. So I end this evening with a, a sad poem. Sorry, but it's beautiful, even though it's a bit sad. It's an ancient poem that is attributed to the Buddha's attendant, the Venerable Ananda. And it's from a collection of verses called the Teragata, verses of the elders. And this was, uh, it's said that this came after the, uh, both of the Buddha's chief, uh, two chief disciples had died and the Buddha had also passed away. So Ananda outlived them, all of the, those three guys and, um, and others, I'm sure. So. The, this timing of this is when like all the old gang had, had uh, bought the farm and uh, passed away. And it's really beautiful. And it points to the uh, high esteem that he placed on mindfulness of the body. So this, this is, these are the words of the Venerable Ananda. All the directions are obscure. The teachings are not clear to me. 
With our benevolent friend gone, it seems as if all is darkness. For one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. The old ones have all passed away, and I do not fit in with the new. And so today I muse alone, like a bird who has gone to roost. So let's just have a moment or two of quiet and let these words drift away into this cool, beautiful evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.